Hey everyone, welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine and EJM Group. I'm Clem, a senior editorial fellow, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Rachel Moon, Harrison Distinguished Teaching Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Virginia and the chair of the AAP's Task Force on Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. She's one of the authors on the AAP's 2022 updated recommendations on sleep-related infant deaths. Dr. Moon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's so good to finally get you in. Part of the concept of the show is to roll back the curtain, so to speak, for listeners regarding guideline creation. Can you give the listeners a glimpse into the AAP recommendation process and what went into the development of this policy statement? Sure. So we have uh, been creating policy statements on safe sleep since 1992. And the way that it works is that every three years, every single policy statement from the AAP is reviewed by the authoring committee or group. And you have to decide whether you want to reaffirm that policy statement, whether you want to retire it or when you want to revise it. And once we decide that a revision is needed, it takes about two years to go through the entire process because we have to do the entire literature review and then we write the draft and then um, it has to go through multiple levels of review. And so that whole process usually takes about two years. This year, it took about three years. Got it. That's very enlightening. And I'm always curious to hear what different organizations do differently. Before we dive right into the recommendations, we do have learners of all levels listening to the show. Can you define for us just some terms um, that are used in this statement? Sudden unexpected infant death, sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS, and sleep-related infant death, which is included in the title of the recommendation statement. They all sound quite similar. They do sound quite similar. So SIDS, S-I-D-S, sudden infant death syndrome, is an old term. And it referred initially to a baby who died suddenly and unexpectedly. We realize that the, there are other forms of sudden and unexpected death than just SIDS. And so now we use the term sudden unexpected infant death, and that encompasses SIDS. That also encompasses accidental suffocation strangulation that can occur in a sleep setting. And it also encompasses deaths that are considered undetermined or ill-defined by the coroner or the medical examiner. And the reason why we have gone to a more inclusive term has been because there has been a reluctance among some medical examiners to use the term SIDS because the term syndrome has some connotations with regards to having a commonality of symptoms, which SIDS doesn't really have. And so we have gone to a more broad term. SUID or sudden unexpected infant death is hard for people to understand what that means sometimes. And the vast majority of these deaths occur in a sleep setting or when the baby is asleep. So now we are moving again towards calling them sleep-related deaths because that seems to be the easiest for people to understand. Perfect. Thanks for clarifying. And I will say that that makes the most sense to me thinking about it as sleep-related infant deaths. So diving right into the recommendations, the first part of the statement reminds us of the main messaging of the Back to Sleep campaign that infants should be placed on their backs for every sleep. It seems like this message hasn't changed much, but perhaps the research around it has evolved. Can you elaborate a little bit about the new evidence that has emerged in the past few years? Most of the evidence that has emerged has just reinforced the importance of back sleeping. Initially, uh, in 1992, we said, just don't put babies on their stomach. And then once we uh, kind of got rid of many of the stomach sleepers, 
then we realize that side is actually a huge issue and is as dangerous as stomach sleeping. Sometimes when you remove something that is a huge risk factor, you can see other risk factors. And that's what happened there. And so now um, we know about side sleeping being problematic. And so we recommend that babies be placed on their backs for every sleep and not the side and not the stomach. And what should we tell the parents of babies with loss of reflux, which is a pretty common issue in pediatrics? It is a huge issue. And first of all, the way that I explain it to parents is reflux is um, spitting up. It is normal. It is not a disease. And most babies are what we call happy spitters. So they spit up and they're fine. It doesn't bother them. They're gaining weight. They're growing normally, developing normally, and it's not an issue. So first of all, it's not a rare issue because a lot of people think that's an exception to the rule and it isn't. So even the gastroenterologists understand that babies who have reflux need to be on their back. So we want babies uh, to be on their back. Anatomically, it's actually harder for babies on their back to aspirate because if you're on your back, your trachea is located on top of your esophagus. And so the food has to go up against gravity to go into the lungs for you to aspirate. So it's actually harder anatomically for you to aspirate when you're on your back. And when I show that to parents, that can sometimes be a light bulb moment for them. And what if the baby starts to roll and is able to roll from back to front? We know that that's a dangerous time because babies can roll. And particularly if there's something in their air in their sleep area, which we hope there isn't, but sometimes there can be things like bumper pads or blankets or pillows or things like that. If they roll into them and they can't roll back out, that can be very dangerous. So we recommend that babies, if they can only roll one way to their front, that if you see that, that you put them back on their back. But once they can roll comfortably both ways, back to front and front to back, then um, you can leave them to sleep in whatever position they choose to. But remember to get everything out from that sleep area for the baby. So there's nothing but the baby in there. Got it. And we'll reinforce some of this later when we talk about the sleep surfaces that are recommended. What if a parent is concerned their baby's head is getting too out of shape or plagiocephalic from supine positioning? Really, we see this mainly when babies are on their back, not just for sleep, but also when they're awake. So there are babies who spend all their times on their back or babies who are in car seats or in swings, and there's always this constant pressure on the back of their head. So first of all, we say, don't worry because it's cosmetic and most babies will, as soon as they start sitting up and pushing up when they're um, in tummy time, that the skull will reconfigure itself so that it isn't so flat. So first of all, we recommend tummy time and we recommend tummy time um, starting right after you come back from the hospital or soon after you come back from the hospital and then build up to 50 to 15 to 30 minutes by the time that the babies are seven weeks old, because the studies have shown that babies who get that much tummy time have less plagiocephaly and their motor development isn't delayed too much. And the other thing is when the baby is awake, try not to have the baby on their back so much. Ha um, have them upright or have them in tummy time because that it's that constant pressure on the back of the head that does that. Perfect. Yeah, those are great recommendations. And sometimes I've heard some mentors recommend mirrors or other things to help babies turn their head in different directions. Yeah, that's a great reminder as well. And, um, you know, when the other thing is that there are some babies that like to look in one certain direction 
particularly when they're in the crib. So for instance, if they are lying in their crib and they like to look in the doorway because they can see their older siblings running out in the hallway. So if you, so if the baby's head was towards the head of the crib, if you turn the baby, so the baby's head is towards the foot of the crib, then the baby has to turn the head the other way to look out into the hallway. And sometimes things like that can help as well. So that's a great tip. I mentioned the back to sleep campaign earlier. It seems like it shifted to being the safe to sleep campaign in 2012. Can you just describe a little bit that shift in mentality? So initially we thought that it was a back positioning that was the most important thing. And that first recommendation was centered just on positioning. And as we've done more research, we have come to understand that it really is the entire sleep environment. So it's where the baby is sleeping, what kind of mattress the baby is sleeping on, the bedding or the absence of bedding around the baby, all of that. So safe to sleep is a much more encompassing term that talks about the entire sleep environment and not just the sleep position. That's a perfect segue to our next segment, which the next portion of the recommendations address the bed an infant should be sleeping on. Can you just remind us what the best type of bed for an infant is? So we want the baby in a firm, which means hard, flat, which means non-inclined, horizontal surface that has CPSC-approved safety standards. The only things that have CPSC standard are cribs, bassinets, play pens or play yards, and bedside co-sleepers. So wherever your baby sleeps, you can only be assured it is safe if it meets those safety standards. Great. I've heard parents express wanting their babies to be comfortable in the bed. So is there any concern that the hard bed is uncomfortable for the baby? Actually, no. And soft beds are more uncomfortable for the baby because if it's soft, then the baby sinks into the bed or into the mattress. And then they actually have a harder time keeping their airway straight and maintaining their breathing. So if it's hard, then that's going to be the safest. The other thing is if the baby turns the head, if it is soft, then the baby's face, part of the face or all of the face can get covered or obstructed by the bedding. And that can be very dangerous as well. So firm and hard is actually very, very comfortable for the baby and much more comfortable for the baby than something that is soft. A lot of parents think that because it makes them feel good, makes them feel comfortable, that their baby will be comfortable the same way. And that's not the case. Right. I think that's a good reminder that babies are not just little adults and things that make us feel nice doesn't necessarily make the baby feel nice or is good for the baby. Right. We also often find that infants fall asleep while traveling. And I've actually had parents tell me that for really difficult babies, they need to drive around with the baby in the car seat to have them fall asleep. So how do we manage infants sleeping in these devices? So car seats and strollers are absolutely the best place to have the babies when you're traveling. So if you are traveling, then we want the baby in a car seat. And if the baby falls asleep that way, then that's fine. But once you get to a place where it's safe to move the baby, we do recommend that you move the baby to a flat, hard surface. And the reason for that there is actually really pretty compelling new evidence, biomechanical evidence that shows that when babies are at an incline, they actually have to use more muscles to keep their airway and to maintain their head position because the head is so big and heavy for babies compared to you and I. And so when you're in an incline position, it's much harder to keep your airway straight. So that's one of the reasons why we don't want the babies in any kind of incline product 
And we don't want them sleeping in a non-travel situation in a car seat or stroller. The guideline mentions cradle boards, and I was not familiar with these. And for those of us who are also not familiar with these, can you describe what these are and what the AAP says about them? Cradle boards are traditional baby carriers that are used in many Native American cultures. And they are a hard board and you put the baby on them and then you swaddle them and strap them into the cradle board. And they're used by many as places for the babies to sleep or for babies to be so that they can be safe in the kitchen or wherever the parents are. And so even though there aren't any safety standards for them, the NIH actually recommends them for Native American culture. And so they should be fine to be used. Great. And we're all for cultural awareness. So like to promote things that other pediatricians might not be aware of. Yes, absolutely. The next major point the policy statement makes is regarding the location of the bed. So can you tell us the ideal location for an infant's crib and what are some potential explanations for the higher rates of sleep-related deaths with sleeping in a different room than the parents? We want the crib to be close to the parent's bed, in the parent's room, ideally right next to the bed. So a couple of reasons for that. One is it makes it much easier for parents to monitor the baby, to bring the baby into the bed for feedings, and for just observation of the baby. So in terms of the mechanisms for why that may be protective, one is that when you're sleeping in the same room with your baby, you have these little arousals. Every time the baby moves or makes a sound, the parent wakes up a little bit and makes sure the baby's okay and then goes back to sleep. And that happens for the baby too, not necessarily to make sure that the parent is okay, but the parent moves and the baby stirs a little bit. And these little arousals are protective. So we know that when babies are sleeping in the same room, but not on the same surface, that that is the safest arrangement for the baby. I actually want to make mention of couches and sofa. So couches and sofas and stuffed armchairs are probably the most dangerous place for babies to sleep. So you should never, ever, ever have your baby sleeping on a couch, a sofa, or a stuffed armchair, whether it's by themselves or with another person. If you go on social media, you will see thousands of pictures of parents falling asleep on couches with their babies. That is so dangerous. And even though it's very cute, it's probably one of the most dangerous places you can have your baby sleeping. No, thanks for bringing that up. Another reminder that what is comfortable for us is not necessarily safe for the baby. Right. On the topic of potential protective factors for sleep-related deaths, what do you know about breastfeeding and sleep-related deaths? Breastfeeding is highly protective. And if you do any breastfeeding for at least two months, your baby's risk of SIDS drops by 50%. Wow, that's pretty significant. So we recommend breastfeeding or feeding of human milk as much and as long as you can. And what about pacifiers? I've heard about pacifiers being protective against this too. Pacifiers are protective. And it's interesting, they are highly protective, um, particularly for babies who are formula fed. And in one study in California, in the Kaiser network, they found that pacifiers were as much as 90% protective, which is huge. The problem with the pacifiers is that we're not exactly sure how they work. And so there are some countries that have been less enthusiastic about endorsing pacifiers as a protective measure against sleep-related death. But here in the U.S., we would recommend that if 
you are not being fed directly on the breast, that you can introduce a pacifier at any time. And then once in a breastfed baby, once both the mom and baby are comfortable with breastfeeding and the baby has started to gain weight, then you can introduce a pacifier. Great. Let's shift gears a little bit to some other risk factors or negative factors against sleep-related deaths. I think most pediatricians have heard about the effects of tobacco smoke on the sleep environment. I was wondering, Dr. Moon, if you know anything or have we heard anything about e-cigarettes and just given their popularity now and how they might relate to sleep-related deaths? The use of e-cigarettes amongst uh, pregnant persons is still fairly new. And so there really aren't much data on that yet. I think in the next couple of years, there will be. But we do know that e-cigarettes have some of the same chemicals that regular combustible cigarettes have, primarily nicotine. And we know that nicotine impacts a baby's ability to to arouse. And so we assume that e-cigarettes will have that same issue because they have a lot of nicotine in them. So combustible cigarettes or e-cigarettes, we really do not recommend because um, we know that exposure to combustible cigarettes in utero or even after birth increases the risk of the baby dying several fold. And in particular, if you have a combination of bed sharing with a parent who smokes, the risk multiplies. So it sounds like some of these risk factors are even synergistic in how damaging they might be for sleep-related deaths. Yes, absolutely. Many of our parents feel better with a monitor on their baby. What is the evidence on cardiorespiratory monitoring in preventing sleep-related deaths? There actually is no evidence for cardiorespiratory monitoring and preventing sleep-related deaths. The best studies have been done 20 years ago, at least 20 years ago, and they showed that hospital-grade monitors did not prevent sleep-related death. And um, the monitors that people have at home are definitely not hospital-grade monitors. And in fact, they are classified by the FDA as consumer wellness devices. And so they would be like your fitness tracker. So just like you would not use your fitness tracker to prevent you from having a stroke, you can't depend upon one of these monitors to prevent a sleep-related death. In terms of peace of mind, I think that that's fine. If you want to hear the baby crying or that just makes you feel better, I think that's certainly fine. And there's no contraindication to using them. But parents have to remember that using a monitor is not a substitute for following safe sleep guidelines. And the thing that we worry about the most is that if you have the monitor on your baby, that you'll say, oh, since the monitor's on, it's okay for the baby to sleep on their stomach, or it's okay to have a pillow in there because I'll know if something happens. And that's not the case. So again, there's no contraindication to them, but you can't use them as a substitute. And please don't become complacent if you do decide to use them. That's a great reminder. I have many pediatrician friends who do have them for their own babies, but we just need to be mindful that still to follow all the recommendations of the AAP and to, like you're saying, not be complacent and not compromise the baby's sleep environment because we have these monitors on. Next, we can move to some disparities. We'd like to just discuss disparities and sort of help pediatricians figure out what are some ways we can mitigate them. Do you see some disparities in sleep-related infant deaths? And what do you think we should do about them? There are definitely disparities in these sleep-related infant deaths. And We see, and they're largely socioeconomic disparities, which often are translated as 
racial and ethnic disparities, but a lot of it is socioeconomic. A lot of families may not have a crib or room for a separate sleep place for their baby. We have families who are homeless or living on the couch of somebody else's home, or they live in an environment that has rodents. And so it can be really challenging to think about safe sleep as being important when you have these other things that you're trying to deal with. And so I think that as providers, the most important thing is to talk with the family about what their situation is and try to work with the family and work with your social work team and work with other resources to try to figure out what can work best for this family. Yeah, I know that in Philadelphia where I trained and I think where you trained too, Cribs for Kids has certain zip codes that they provide free cribs even for some of our families. So I think that's a great place to start to look and definitely partnering with our social work team to figure out the best ways for our families to afford safe sleeping cribs if they don't have them. So shifting a little bit to maybe um, legislative things that are hot off the press, two major acts have been passed in 2021 that might be good to review related to sleep-related infant deaths. Start with the Scarlet Sunshine on Sudden Unexpected Death Act. What is this act and does it change how we manage sudden infant death syndrome? So the Scarlet Sunshine Act, what this does, it helps to strengthen our efforts to better understand SUID and not just sudden unexpected infant death, but sudden unexpected death in children. So it establishes a grant program for states to support state fetal and infant mortality and child death review program. And the reason why this is important is because these are the programs that collect the data, provide the data to be analyzed so that we can understand what's happening and it will help us better improve our prevention efforts. Great. Yeah. And throughout the podcast, we've mentioned some new research that has been done, some new data that has come out and out these efforts. It's really hard to make new recommendations or to, as you mentioned before, realize that perhaps putting a baby on their side is also not as safe if we don't have the data to support that. So I think that's great. What is the Safe Sleep for Babies Act of 2021? And what are the two types of products it outlaws? So the Safe Sleep for Babies Act, it just passed Congress this summer and was signed by President Biden. And importantly, it bans the manufacture and sale of bumper pads and any cushion bumper pads and incline sleep products. And this is hugely important because bumper pads are soft and babies can get trapped against them. They can suffocate against them. They can actually get trapped in between the mattress and the bumper pad. Well, we have discouraged bumper pad use for decades, and we've been trying to get them off the market for that long as well. And so that's hugely important. And then the incline sleep products we are really excited about as well, because these are the products that we talked about earlier, that if you are in them, remember that when babies are on an incline, they have a harder time keeping their airway open and their head up, and they fatigue faster. And so they're at higher risk for suffocation. And we know that there were hundreds of these products that were responsible for babies dying in the last few years. That came out in a Consumer Reports article a year or two ago, the Rock and Play and other similar products. And none of those products are safe for babies. And so that is really important as well. Other than this guideline, are there places where pediatricians or parents can look up certain products and to see if they would be safe for their baby? Are there things that you recommend for people? 
The best thing to do is to look at the Consumer Product Safety Commission website, the CPSC. That will tell you if a product has been banned or has been recalled. But the problem is that there isn't any one place that you can go to see. And the CPSC is actually forbidden by law from disclosing certain accidents and deaths unless the manufacturer agrees to disclose that to the public. So that's actually pretty problematic because the vast majority of people think that if something is being sold on the market, particularly if it's for babies who are the most vulnerable population that we have, they think that if it's being sold in the stores, that somebody must have decided that it was safe and it must have gone through some kind of approval process. But that is actually not true. So we really have to be careful about when we buy products where our babies are going to sleep. So my advice is to actually to read the guidelines to see what we recommend as being safe. Since you know that the baby should be on a hard, firm surface, if you press on the surface and it gives, then that's not a good product for your baby. If there are soft sides to that product, that's not a good product for your baby. If it's inclined more than 10 degrees from the horizontal, that's not a good product for your baby. So I urge people to be familiar with the recommendations and use that to guide what you buy for your baby. Yeah. And I think that's another great reminder for pediatricians. We do this already in our wellness checks, but to always ask about, ask parents what surfaces or babies are sleeping on, just because of the things that you're mentioning that a lot of people can assume that what's on the market is good. But unless you ask, you don't know what people are using and if it's safe or not. And we can expect all of our parents to be reading the guidelines. So um, I think it's incumbent on the pediatricians to check. We covered a lot of ground today with the guidelines, Dr. Moon. Is there anything else you would like to highlight that we haven't talked about yet? There are two things that I'd like to mention. One is weighted swaddles and blankets. These have become incredibly popular lately, and we don't recommend them for babies because they can compress the rib cage. And if you remember from your anatomy, for young infants, the rib cage isn't bony yet. It hasn't ossified. So it's still cartilage and is very, very deformable. So depending on the weight of the blanket or the swaddle, that can actually compress the airway or make it harder for the baby to breathe. So we don't recommend those. There was a study that came out from Australia a couple of months ago that the headlines were all about how the cause of SIDS has been discovered and that we now have a test for SIDS. And it's a chemical called um, butylcholinesterase, which is an enzyme that is in the brain. So we know that acetylcholine is a major neurotransmitter in the autonomic nervous system. And butylcholinesterase is one of the enzymes that helps to break down acetylcholine. And we know that the autonomic nervous system is important in terms of SIDS risk. So what the authors did was they looked at the dried blood samples that are taken from newborns in the hospital, and they compared the dried blood samples of babies who died from SIDS, from babies who died from other reasons, and from babies who didn't die. And there were 26 SIDS cases in this sample. And they reported that the babies who died from SIDS had a mean, an average lower level of butylcholinesterase than the other babies. So then this was taken by the press to mean that, that this was a breakthrough and that it could identify babies at risk. But I want to remind the readers that when you look at screening tests, you want the test to be sensitive, meaning that every person who has the disease has a positive test. 
And you also want it to be specific, which means that every person who doesn't have the disease has a negative test. And we know that no screening test is perfect because there are always false positives and false negatives. But we also know that um, when you talk about predictive value, that that is partly and largely affected by how much of that disease is in the population at that point. And so if you look at the graphs for this study that look at this um, butylcholinesterase, even though there's a significant difference statistically, half of the babies who died of SIDS had levels that were normal and half of the babies who didn't die had abnormal levels. So as a screening test, you can't have something where half of the results are false positives, false negatives. That's just going to be disastrous. So while this is interesting, and certainly people will be looking at this more to see if there can be more glean from this, this is not the breakthrough that we're all looking for right now. I think that's a good reminder for us and a good glimpse into the future and maybe of what is to come in the world of SIDS and sleep-related infant deaths. But as you said, I think for the time being, we still need to be diligent in making sure our babies sleep in the right positions with the right environment before we have a test that can predict which babies are at highest risk of this bad outcome. And this outcome being so detrimental, I think there's, there's little room for error and we all need to be sort of protecting this vulnerable population as best as we can. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consult. I'd like to thank Dr. Rachel Moon for joining us today to discuss the latest AAP updates in sleep-related infant deaths. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Gott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamnick. Curbside Consult is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.